Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? (laughs) What? We are back with another great episode of the podcast and a topic that we have talked a little bit about before, at least tangentially, uh, but that we haven't really talked about in a while. Right. The last time we talked about this topic uh, was way back in episode eight, uh, which we recorded mm, in 2018. Yeah, it was 2018, a full four (laughs) years earlier than the recording of this episode. Yeah. So four years ago, we talked about this topic a little bit when we were still young and green podcasters, (laughs) when we were first starting out. Uh, You can go check that out if you want to hear a little bit more on this topic, but we're here to kind of revisit the topic, but also to go a little more specific. Yeah, I mean, episode eight is a fine episode. In preparation for this episode, I went back and listened to it. Um, I, I, I do love listening to our older episodes, and if you're just joining us on the show, I really do think that going back into the back catalog is totally worthwhile. Uh, it's what I call our uh, garage band era. Uh, I was editing on GarageBand at the time, and we didn't have all of the audio tools that we have now. Uh, We had far worse microphones and uh, other equipment, Uh, and and our recording setup was just not as streamlined as it is now. Um, So the show sounds different, but our ideas have always been, I think, pretty good, pretty interesting. And episode 8 was about rides as games specifically as they related to emergent narrative and the lost state uh and that is a pretty cool way to jump into talking about rides as games but this episode is entitled beyond the shooting gallery interactivity in rides and alice i cannot wait to jump into this because i've been thinking about it for weeks now yes this has been a topic of conversation that we've had several times over the last few weeks, um, and we've also put out the um, put out the suggestion for conversation to our Twitter followers and people in our Discord server. So not only do we have a lot of thoughts about this, later we have a lot of listener thoughts about this topic. That's going to be really really fun, I think. And we've got a lot of strong opinions about rides (laughs) like this. (laughs) We do, and so do our listeners. It's an interesting uh, topic of conversation when it comes to rides. Yeah, and it is such an interesting question because it feels like this is where a lot of interesting work is being done in the themed entertainment space and in theme parks in general. But... The reason that this episode is called Beyond the Shooting Gallery is, well, when you look back at episode eight, we talked about two shooting gallery rides that are at the Disneyland Resort, those being Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters and Toy Story Midway Mania. And at the time, those were the big examples of interactive rides. Like, these are the rides that you, like, play like they are games. Since then... There have been fully two more rides added to the Disneyland Resort that have, like, a lot of interactivity to them. And one of them is just a straight-up 
shooting gallery. It's a very good shooting gallery. Uh, Web Slingers at, at Avengers Campus. It's it's very good, right? Like I have a really good time when I ride it. Um, but it is just a shooting gallery. Right. And the other one is um, a, an entirely new animal altogether. The uh, Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, which is so interactive for all the people that write it. Um, but it's not a shooting gallery at all. Yeah. Uh, and that's interesting because, like, there's still a lot of shooting on Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. I mean... There is an entire position on the ship called the Gunner. That's uh, true. The one with the guns. <laughs> uh, the engineer even kind of has like a, a shooting role in the firing of the harpoons. Um, but yeah, it is not strictly speaking a shooting gallery. It's more of a uh, flight simulator with shooting elements, right? Sure. And you're not sitting there aiming. You're not looking for targets specifically to, you know, you, you've got your automatic aiming your automatic targeting system, right? You're pretty much just hitting buttons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and interestingly, uh, Web Slingers, uh, the Spider-Man attraction uh, over at California Adventure, is also doing what it can to separate itself from the Toy Story rides by kind of being a, uh, you know, a little bit more interesting format. There are things you can do other than shoot. You can sling web at certain objects and pull them to create chain reactions. But then again, at the end of the day, it is still kind of just target practice in front of various settings. Sure. But the thing that really does set the Spider-Man ride um, apart is that um, we no longer have little guns or little pull triggers to... Um, to be the, the the shooter, you you are using your hands. It's got motion sensor technology that watches your hands and your body, and as you you know fling your arms out with your little Spider Man fingers, <laughs> pew pew, and you know launch webs using the motion of your body to do so. So it it sets itself apart um, by changing the formula up a little bit. Yes, you're you're you have other things to do other than just. Um, shoot, um, but also you are involving your entire body. Like it is like a fully, I would say, immersive experience when you have to to physically move to, you know, make the ride happen for you. Yeah, it's definitely a fuller body experience, um, and I like that a lot. Actually, I never do the um, Spider-Man fingers. Uh, I always do just finger guns. It's equally effective on that ride. Yeah, um, you don't have to do the Spider-Man fingers. But I just think it... finger guns are cool. I don't know. I I fully committed to the Spider-Man fingers. Why? If I were a Spider-Man, I would probably try to find a way to sling webs by doing finger guns. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess that would be cool for you. <laughs> <laughs> Not cool for you because, you know, I'm much cooler than you. Oh, that... Just like... <sighs> At a base level. Sure, sure, buddy, <laughs> sure, buddy. Um, <laughs> so let's talk. Let's talk about the about the shooting gallery. Let's, okay. Let's talk about a shooting gallery ride. What is good about a shooting gallery ride? Let's start there. Let's start with the positives. Yeah, I mean, thinking back to episode eight, uh, we had a lot of really good things to say about a shooting gallery. Actually, uh, the idea that it is competitive that it creates a narrative between you and the person sitting next to you, uh, who is hopefully somebody you're there at the theme park with. So you get to compare scores and brag about it all day or 
eternally in your case, mm-hmm. uh, as as it <laughs> goes with uh, Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters. Um, but you know, like that—that that is a really positive thing. This little style of competition. I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind. Like, we're going to talk about how we want to go beyond the shooting gallery because three out of four interactive rides at the Disneyland Resort are shooting galleries, and that feels very shooting gallery heavy. And it feels like there is untapped potential in interactivity. But like, the emergent narrative of I beat you at a thing, and I get to talk to you about that is very good. It's satisfying. Right. Also with the potential, um, as with um, Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters, at least, I can't remember if Midway Mania does it, but they have um, daily scoreboards, too. So you have the potential to make it up onto a scoreboard for the rest of the day for everyone else to see how good you did. If you, you know, if you're that good at it. (laughs) I cannot imagine returning to the lobby uh, of Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters and being like, hey, uh, I'm just here to check out the scoreboard to see if I uh, I still have the top (laughs) score for the day. Like, I can't imagine being that competitive, but I'm sure somebody is. If I had a if I had a particularly good day and a particularly good score, I probably would go back to check up on it. <laughs> I'm I think I might be that kind of competitive. So that adds like an extra bit of like personalization. You get to personally be involved with the ride and personally be invested in the outcome of the ride. It's also I think um a shooting gallery ride, especially like Buzz Lightyear, is a ride that encourages um not just interactivity with the um with the set and with the targets. Um, But with your friends as well, like while you're actually on the ride, you are encouraged to talk to your friend that you're sitting with. You are encouraged to um, mess around with the um, with the spin, with the thing that makes the car spin. (laughs) Yeah, the spin function of the Astro Blasters, Uh, the Space Ranger spin for you Floridians. That's true. Um, And so, you you know, you get you get your chance to um, interact with that and also you don't have to be you know i don't know you have to don't have to be quiet during the ride you can talk you can chat you can compare scores right then and there you can point things out to each other you know it is it is not just a place where you can you know sit you know sit quietly and go for a high score it's it's like an arcade it's interactive for on like multiple levels toy story midway mania i think is a little loud <laughs> and i have a harder time interacting with my with my neighbor it, during that one because it's uh, it's noisy in there and much much faster paced um but I can you know I can I vividly recall times where we're sitting next to each other in the Buzz Lightyear ride chatting and fighting over the you know spin and if it has to stop for any reason then we're fighting over who gets to face the best target <laughs> <laughs> um you know, purposefully spinning the car so fast that you can't focus on anything and I win, <laughs> you know, things like that, where where it's not just about interacting the ride, but it's about interacting with each other and like building a community almost. Yeah, and I think that's really nice. That's like a really nice thing that you can do with a ride. Yeah, the the competition uh, is inherently social as well. And that interactivity also being social and socially minded uh, isn't just about the stories you tell afterwards. It's the ways that you are able to engage with each other during the ride. I agree with you that Midway Mania is maybe weaker for this, but I think uh, Web Slingers is actually very strong for this. It is. There is group progress on certain goals 
as well as individual progress. That's right. Um, yes, you get a like a do do they actually have like a group score? Like a yeah, like there's a, a team there's like a score as well like as an a, individual. Yeah, there's like a bar that gets filled as the group does better. And there are also uh, the big tasks, like when Spider-Man is trapped and you all need to shoot out the different things that are holding him. Yes. Uh, if you can do that together, you get a big bonus. So it's relying on multiple players to take care of these big jobs, like to kill the big spider bot or whatever as well. Um and and then rewarding everybody collectively for that. I think that's really good. That's like a huge strength. And then there being pauses in between that give you a chance to check out your progress so far. Um, also, Spider-Man has like really good set design as well. Uh, lots of cool designs uh, and uh, and props uh, between scenes that are on the screens. Oh yeah, that, absolutely. that kind of like make it a deeper experience than say Midway Mania. Which is just like all toys. It's like it's all playtime. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. Midway Mania as a as a set piece is a specifically a like a pier style carnival ride game. Like has a very specific style and a very specific vibe that it's going for. And it's really fast and it's mostly like ring toss games or like darts or something like that where it's you know you've got your targets and you've got your you've got your you know different games that 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 you play that look like and feel like you're on a on pixar pier looking over the water and playing you know playing games and 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 it's and it's a fun those are fun games oh Um, no and i am of the opinion that accuracy matters not at all my accuracy (laughs) score will be zero percent (laughs) and especially in midway mania yeah it's about that rapid fire for me absolutely and yes. and I think the same goes for web slingers. I mean, like, can you can you really say that you aimed at that one spider bot that you were trying to get? Like, yes. no, you're just web slinging <laughs> all over the place. Like, no, yeah, I'm shooting more webs because it's more fun to because look, I get to be Spider Man today. <laughs> like that's and that's really cool and it's immersive. Yeah. You get to be Spider Man. You have Spider Man powers for a couple minutes. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think I think we're actually kind of getting towards another positive of the shooting gallery ride, which is it is so simple to understand the act of shooting. Uh, it's like very, very clear to any audience member, no matter their age, their background, like this laser gun fires a laser. You know, this ring toss game, it, it, it is a ring toss game. Like, yeah. we don't need to spend a lot of time explaining that if you sling a web and hit a thing and it explodes, like, there's a relationship there. Um, and so it's not a puzzle that needs to be solved by first-time writers. Like, it's a thing that does exactly what you'd expect. It launches a thing at a thing. Uh, if you hit the thing, it's good. If you don't hit the thing, try again, right? Uh, That relationship and that action is so clearly defined and easy to read that I think shooting galleries have a very very high advantage compared to, say, your Millennium's Falcon Smuggler Run, which is the, the true plural grammatically speaking of millennium Millennium falcons it's millennium's falcon smuggler runs falcon got it smuggler (laughs) runs two plurals (laughs) right two plurals (laughs) your millennium's falcons uh anyways millennium falcon feels like it needs to uh tutorialize a little bit more and it feels like some of the roles 
are a bit more complex. I mean, Alice, you were telling me in preparation for this episode that you don't like to play the pilot role. I do not. On Millennium Falcon. I do not like to fly the Millennium Falcon. I'm glad that I have done it. <laughs> and if, uh, it, if it was the only thing <laughs> to be done, uh, then I would step in, step up and, and pilot. Um, I think it's too much pressure, personally. I think it's too easy to mess up. Um, I prefer pushing more buttons than, than steering. I've just, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm a perfectly fine driver, but when it's a spaceship, I don't know. I don't know how to steer the thing. <laughs> I keep running into stuff and, and shooting too high, shooting too, I overcorrect. No, I like engineer. I know that's a controversial opinion, but I like the engineer position. I like to sit in the back and I like to hit all of the things that light up. And uh, mostly it means that I can sit in the back and uh, watch the screen and watch the like ride happen in front of me. I don't have to, you know, focus too hard on my role until somebody crashes. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's not your fault as it would be if you were no, the pilot. No, then I get to so fix it and I'm you, the hero. You get to be the fixer, right. <laughs> I actually, uh, I've ridden Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run four times now. Uh, and I was an engineer three of those times because I I love the idea of flipping switches and hitting buttons to repair the Falcon. It is very satisfying. Uh, the harpoons I could take or leave, um, but being in the back, seeing the whole scene, seeing how everybody is acting in the moment, and then also getting to flip lots of switches and press right. a lot of buttons is very good. Engineer <laughs> yes. is underrated. Engineer gets to do the most interacting. They get to touch the most stuff. And I think <laughs> that's the coolest. Um, and that's, but, but to speak on, on like, like community interaction or like, like a ride that like encourages you to participate with the people sitting next to you. It, you can't beat Millennium Falcon Smugglers Run. Oh, like, no. I just talked about how Buzz Lightyear encourages you to hang out with your partner, but Millennium Falcon puts six people in a, in a space together, and you might not all know each other, but suddenly you are in charge of getting coaxium and, from a refinery and bringing it back to Batuu in your favorite ship ever, listening yeah. to your buddy Hondo talking to you over the radio. It's incredible. I, I leave the Millennium Falcon every time feeling like I was on a team with the rest of the writers. You're a little bit bonded, even yeah. if you don't know each other. Yeah. For, for you know, the next several minutes. You might even feel like maybe somebody did something or said something particularly funny while you were doing it. And you'll think about it for the rest of the day. Yeah. Oh, do you remember that guy? That was so fun. Oh, do you remember when that kid crashed us into the thing? That was awesome. <laughs> you know, you you remember those things. It creates memorable, magical moments for everyone. Yeah. Even if you, you know, you know, you, you bring one coaxium back or you got the lowest score on Buzz Lightyear or, you know, you're you you crashed, you know, so so hard into everything. Um even if you do like quote unquote the worst that you can do on those rides you still participated you still played you still had fun and built something together as a group and that yeah. i think is really really important now i will say that uh the fourth time i did pilot the falcon <laughs> and 
I got to say, I completely disagree with you. It is not too much pressure. It handles like a dream. And being able to pull the lever to go to hyperspace is absolutely transcendent. Um, one of the single greatest theme park experiences that a person can have. Uh, to be able to send the Falcon to hyperspace. Oh, yeah. To no. say light speed to Endor and to go <laughs> light speed and control that. It's Star Tours, but I get to go to light speed, Alice. I know. I know. And it really is magic. I, 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 I agree. I did very much enjoy that part. I like pulling the lever. I was left pilot once and I hit the brakes. <laughs> Like a little too late. You know what I've noticed is that is that left pilot never knows to hit the brakes. That is not clearly com communicated to the left pilot. That like the brakes are your job. There will come a time when you must hit them. Be ready for that. Yeah. I had I had most of my left pilots fail the brake check. Yeah. Um, well, you're always going to fall down. Like there are certain things in that ride that will always happen. You are going to fall down that 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 mine shaft. Yeah, of course, but you, you can hit the brakes, the brakes though, right? You can make it not so bad. Anyways, I that's that's what I'm talking about though, is that there is complexity to the jobs on Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run that a shooting gallery just doesn't have. A shooting gallery has a clearly defined action, reaction, and goal. Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, if you don't know that the engineer is in charge of the harpoon and that there's a little screen that helps you orient the harpoon to get it just right, you're not getting it right. And there's no amount of flipping switches and buttons that's going to make you succeed that check unless you know how the ride works. There is a lack of clarity, and there's not a lot of time to teach people in the amount of time that the Falcon has you, right? Right. So... A shooting gallery does have that over a design similar to uh, Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, which I don't think there's anything out there right now that is similar to Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. <laughs> uh, but just to say, like, if there are designers out there thinking about the future, it's like, well, yeah, but people don't always get what they're supposed to do on this, right? Right. And that is a problem. And shooting galleries have never had that problem because no. it is it is an understood element. Sure, it's it's physics at some point, right? Like, yeah, a projectile goes one way towards a target, and and people learn that they have that that sense of of if I throw something or if I aim something in that direction, it will either hit it or miss, and I can readjust. You develop that sense really young, distance and depth depth perception and um, and aiming, and and it comes with with fine motor skills and you don't necessarily though need to have fine motor skills to play these games um you just need to you know sit there and have fun and because yeah. there's no losing and we talked about this in the lost state episode episode eight there's no losing a shooting gallery ride you just yeah. play and yeah you might not get as high a score as your friend but you got to play and you got to ride and you got to have fun there are varying degrees of su success right um and that actually applies to Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run as well. Uh, the idea that no matter what, you're going to fly the Falcon. And if things go really badly, like Chewie takes over and flies you in, right? But like, no matter what, the, the ride keeps happening. You can only bump into so many things. There can only be such an amount of damage. The Falcon doesn't explode with you in it no matter what you do. Which, honestly, Alice, that sounds like a, a pretty interesting idea for a ride. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, it, it should never could, be done. you could break the Falcon? No, because the could Falcon's break the Falcon outside. And, and Hondo comes on the screen and is like, the Falcon is inoperable. 
I'm sorry, the First Order is coming to get you. We never met. <laughs> that would be um, awful. That would be awful. <laughs> and then Stormtroopers show up the, at the door. <laughs> you walk off the ride, and then the Millennium Falcon is sitting there in its full complete that's glory true. in Batuu. That's true. It's you just right there. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. I- I'm just saying, like, that's an interesting idea, but, like, you cannot fail, right? And we've talked about all the reasons that it's a bad idea to have a ride where you lose at a theme park. You're paying hundreds of dollars to be there. Thousands of people need to ride this ride a day. It doesn't make sense that you would get on it and lose it like you might an arcade game. It is a different set of priorities. Yes. So a shooting gallery has built into itself a lack of ability to lose. Web Slingers is interesting because of these like little challenge moments where it's like, kill the big spider bot, save Spider-Man. And you can do like worse at them. Um, But as long as people are, like, shooting at the screen, like, it's pretty much going to resolve itself. And the scene ends inevitably no matter what, right? Like, something will happen that will save Spider-Man or the Spider-Bot will explode. Right. Um, But having these little conditions where, like, you can succeed less well collectively, I think is an interesting progression towards something resembling a lost state. Like, oh, man, if we were a little faster, we could have saved Spider-Man. That means we would have had a better score. And that's cool in a way that, like, Astro Blasters can't be. You can't be like, oh, man, if we had shot Zerg a little bit more, he wouldn't have gotten returned <laughs> to the toy store. Like, No, uh, he's always you know, going back to the toy store. He's a bad toy. He's a bad toy. You got a bad Zerg there, bud. Like, uh, so it's like, yeah, there are... There are different things that are that are kind of iterating on a potential lost state w- between Falcon and uh, Web Slingers that are kind of getting us there. And I think that's cool while also kind of maintaining this like score-based system where it's your level of success that you're measuring, not whether you succeeded. Uh, and the final thing that I want to really hand to shooting gallery rides, because this is important, and we've been talking about it for what feels like this entire mini-season that we've crafted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to talk about capacity real fast. Because oh, yeah. the more interactive you make a ride, it seems, the more challenges around capacity you might have. If guests need 10, 15 minutes to unravel a puzzle to feel like they got the whole ride we're going to run into some problems. And a shooting gallery, especially one on an Omnimover or a double carousel, uh, like in the case of Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, which is very ingenious, the carousels that they got going there. It's really cool. Um, Or even Web Slingers and Midway Mania, which have these kind of, uh, you know, cars that are flipping around from place to place. And they they have a decent amount of capacity. Um, So... You know, when you're talking about capacity with these highly kinetic, always moving ride systems, they're very successful. If you're slowing down to be more interactive, if you're adding things like character interactions or puzzles or or alternate paths, I think capacity might take a hit. And I don't know if a world-class theme park, you know, destination like Disneyland or Disney World uh, has room for that. As we've seen with things like uh, the Galactic Star Cruiser, which recently opened to mixed reviews, but like there's a lot of story elements and puzzles and stuff like that for a very select group of guests that are paying $6,000 a room over the course of two nights. 
you can see where that is a very limited sort of resource that these places can offer that perhaps your average theme park ride simply can't based on operational needs. Right, because like a shooting gallery is a tried and true method to uh, move people through a space to get them to participate, to get them to play. Everybody's having a good time. This is a theme park ride. Going for the like immersive, interactive, like extremely personal experience with the Galactic Star Cruiser is kind of like a different beast altogether. And it really, by its very nature, can only be like a very small group of people. And that's that's fine to have and that that'll that people will pay for that and 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 enjoy that. But if you're if you're Disneyland and you're operating a, a theme park and you've got literally hundreds of thousands of visitors a day, you have to you can't go that specific. You have to go broader. And the shooting gallery rides um have the the super high ride ride capacity and has that um, has that capability to give lots and lots of people a, a, a good time. Yeah. I mean, something that we have considered in the past as like maybe a potential inspiration point for theme park rides and attractions is like, oh, escape rooms. Those are really cool. And they're very immersive and interactive. And you leave with a story that you get to tell about how you did. But like, Escape rooms are kind of bespoke, uh, despite the fact that they're not nearly as expensive as, like, your Galactic Star Cruisers or your Galactic's Star Cruiser. Uh, <laughs> they are smaller experiences meant for groups of six to eight, in most cases, to experience over the course of, like, a full hour. And you can't put a bunch of people through that very efficiently. Uh, you know, there's always going to be limited time slots, limited reservations to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always going to need to be flexibility because, you know, you're solving puzzles that could take longer or shorter, depending on if the puzzle is well designed or if your players are, uh, you know, experienced at solving puzzles. So you won't be able to use the lessons of an escape room very easily in a theme park ride where the needs are, as you say, to move people through a thing and have them feel like they got to interact along the way. And so, like, actually, maybe we should rename this episode In Praise of the Shooting Gallery. Because <laughs> the Shooting Gallery ride reigns supreme for a reason. Scores, competitiveness, social aspects, capacity, clarity of purpose, even accessibility, right? Because to use some of these shooting gallery things is something that a lot of people can do, though not everybody, and that is a thing that we could work on industry-wide. These are things that are mostly accessible, easy to understand, and that just work. And so the shooting gallery is, while maybe not the whole future, certainly it has earned its place as a type of ride. Right. I think we can we can connect this thought to the next one, which is talking about other types of interactivity in rides. So we love a shooting gallery. We talked about how much we love a shooting gallery. We have acknowledged it's the the good things about a shooting gallery. But there are other types of interactivity in rides that aren't just, you know, interacting with the screen in front of you, you know, not just or shooting at something. 
there are other ways to interact with your ride-going experience. Yeah, in fact, there have been for decades. Right. Um, a, a, a really good example of this, and probably the most basic example of this, is a ride like the Dumbo Flying Elephants or Astro Orbiter. An incredibly simple way to get people to interact with the ride, to make the ride feel tailor-made as an experience for you, is to give them a little lever right at the front of the ride that lets you decide your elevation. The ride spins around at a, you know, a, a relatively quick pace in a circle, and you get to choose how high up or down your little elephant or spaceship goes. <laughs> you yeah. are in charge of that. Yeah, and that is so revolutionary in its simplicity. It is a choice that you get to make. It is a single axis of control, and it still makes you feel like you get to choose what's going on. And it still leaves you with a story that you write. Did you see how high I went? Oh, I was really trying to keep it low this time. I was trying to keep it dead centered. Was I dead center? That sort of thing, right? Yeah. I personally uh, am a go really high the whole time sort yeah. of person. Yeah, I am also a uh, all the way high sort of person. I And, and I, I like to sing Rocket Man the whole time. I, yes. Loudly. Oh. You just unlocked some some good old good old childhood memories. We used to sing Rocket Man uh, on, on Dumbo specifically, not on the Astro Orbiters. <laughs> on both. <laughs> if you're in charge of your little of your little ship and you get to sail it, you're the Rocket Man. <laughs> yeah, I am the Rocket Man. I also now I sing Rocket Man on uh, on the Golden Zephyr uh, because th those are also rockets. Yeah, if you're if you're in a rocket, you sing Rocket Man. That's just what you're you the do. Rocket Man. I sing Rocket but, Man on on uh, Space Mountain, and I actually have uh, done a pretty good mashup of Rocket Man in the in the Space Mountain music. Oh well, we'll have uh, to make that. I'll put that on my my SoundCloud next. I was gonna week. say record that and release that as a Patreon exclusive, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, but so like that's like a really really basic level of interactivity, right? You don't need to do much in order to get people to feel more connected to the space that they're in, even if it's a simple ride like Dumbo. Yeah. Uh, another really simple classic ride right there at Disneyland is the teacups, uh, oh. the Mad Tea Party, which of course has its imitators and its uh, predecessors, of course, but the teacups are perhaps one of the most iconic versions of this spinning ride where you get to control the rate of spin and that's it but there is yeah. interactivity in that right sure every every theme park has a has a teacup style ride now because of how easy it is to you build one ride that can be whatever you want it to be if you're bringing your littlest kid on this ride you don't spin you just enjoy you are a bunch of rowdy teenagers and you fight each other over how fast to spin. <laughs> it's still your ride. It becomes your experience. And you walk off going, did you see how fast I went? Yeah. Um, last time I was on with my husband and we got the, we got the teacups really clipping, really <laughs> going super fast. And then I just leaned back and looked up at the sky and just like, oh, let it no. happen. And no, that was fun for me. I mean, that's like, the move. That was so fun for me to it's a little it's a little kid ride for little kids. But I got to, you know, make it as thrilling as I wanted it to be, which huh. was very 
because I'm because I'm an adrenaline junkie <laughs> and I wanted to get dizzy and spin real fast. And we did that. We have that ability. Uh, this is also our chance to speak on a ride that I will always go to bat for. I am perhaps the world's greatest scholar of this particular attraction. <laughs> I, I am, of course, talking about Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. Such a uh, good ride. Which is the teacups, if they were a dark ride. Um, you know, you control the rate of the car's spin by spinning a wheel in the car. Uh, and it's iconic, frankly. Um, it deserves our respect. It deserves a lot of credit for being a dark ride with interactive elements, those interactive elements being how much you spin. Um, and it, it, it just works. It, it is a, an incredibly solid idea. A dark ride where you spin. That means that the environments have to be a little bit more 3D, a little bit more in-depth. And that means spinning needs to yield interesting results. You can kind of whip around corners faster. You can go into the Hall of Mirrors and see yourself spinning. It <laughs> makes for a really interesting ride. Yeah, I like to, to go to the part of the ride where it where you're falling and the skyscrapers are getting bigger around you as you're like falling through the sky. And I like to face up so it looks like the skyscrapers are appearing from below from behind me. Yes, that, that is the only way to spin the car <laughs> in that moment. I 100% agree with you. And it's fun. And, we, and we've ridden it enough times that we have like beats and moments in that ride that we, you know, that we feel or more our best experienced a certain way um and that's because we get to write it and change it when we yeah. want to we get we have that ability interestingly that ride allows you to become a performer within the story of the dark ride it allows you to say we're falling i'm gonna face up like i'm falling right yeah that's interesting because like even smugglers run is asking you to perform in a certain way that is far more strict than that. Like, you're firing the missiles when told because it is the moment for the missiles. It's not like, oh, you know, here we go. We need something big. You get to make the choice. What is it going to be? More blasters or the missiles? Like, Roger Rabbit Cartoon Spin has agency there, uh, where Millennium Falcon Smugglers Run is about, you know, creating a set of scripted events that you engage with correctly. Uh, Roger Rabbit Cartoon Spin lets you say, I will spin, Roger. <laughs> I will spin to be the way that makes sense for the ride. Have you ever tried to ride Roger Rabbit Cartoon Spin where you spin the car as if you're driving it normally <laughs> through the Alice, track? Alice, <laughs> you, have, you have unlocked a core memory. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to drive straight. <laughs> I am going to behave normally in this wacky cartoon world. Uh, and it's yeah, really that's really hard to do. Yeah, because you really have to fight the thing. Um, it is something that I try to do about 50% of the time. Um, like, I want to face forward and I'm going to try really hard to drive this like a car. It's but a like, car it, now. It, like, on purpose will hit a turn too fast and you'll spin the wrong way. Like, the ride will spin you. Yeah. If you don't, even if you, if you choose not to touch the wheel... The ride is designed to get you spinning, and, yeah. and and it will happen, but you can increase the rate of spin if you want to. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it kind of feels like it wants you to spin a certain direction at certain times based on the car's momentum. But uh, you don't have to. Like, if you wanted to, you can You can spin that. counter to that, right. 
And and that and that makes the design work inside that man, we should have a whole episode on cartoon spin. It the deserves design it. work in that ride means that because you can spin 360 degrees the entire time, the normal dark ride, like the normal dark ride, like, oh, we're gonna set a little scene for you here to look at, and like the rest of the room is dark, so this is the only thing you can look at. It does not apply here in Roger Rabbit. Every single inch of that ride needs to be designed to look at and be experienced by the rider um, because you don't want your rider to spin the wrong way or, you know, the way that you don't want them to and look at a plain blank wall with nothing on it is that's no fun. It completely turns the dark ride format on its head, uh, giving it a full 360 degree environment in which it needs to interact it's very good like this ride is top tier alice let's table it for a moment because <laughs> i feel like it's going to make a great episode when toontown reopens after the the refurb yes i'm, uh, I'm so, so excited i love uh, that listeners <laughs> look forward to that sometime in the near future when toontown announces its reopening day uh, we will announce our Roger Rabbit cartoon spin appreciation episode. <laughs> However, in the meantime, it is time to speak a little bit on the limitations of interactivity in a ride. I mean, we've already kind of pointed some of these out, but let's really dig in here. Like, what can we absolutely not do on a theme park ride in terms Um, of interactivity in terms of interactivity well my first thought um on this goes to accessibility um you can't make a ride where it is absolutely 100 percent necessary for enjoyment of the ride for every single person who rides the ride to be able to do certain physical tasks yeah, like, I'm thinking about running, jumping, uh, ducking quickly, dodging around things, uh, doing anything strenuous for a long amount of time. Uh, these are all things that could greatly limit your audience and would just be a total bummer to have exist. Not to mention be like against the American Disabilities Act, which is yeah. very important. <laughs> Because, like, for I was thinking about the Spider-Man ride earlier. And, like, what about people who want to ride the ride who maybe don't have use of their arms? Is there, like, an accessibility option for them? Um, is there a version, uh, like, a, like, a, like, a audio descriptive version for people, for people who are blind? Is there, you know, I, I don't know the answers to that. But I would hope that there was some way for people to enjoy that ride and that experience, even if they are um, not physically capable of doing the Spider-Man hands. Yeah. You know, like I enjoy the Spider-Man hands, but some people can't do that. So like, what is, what is the answer there? I hope they have some way. Yeah, I would, I would certainly hope so. And I think some of that stuff is listed like outside of the rides, if these things exist, but if you are unable to interact with the system, then the ride is a pretty boring thing it needs the interactivity to tell its story and so the interactivity should be very accessible um in the case of toy story midway mania alice even i a relatively able-bodied person i would say uh leave feeling sore Um, (laughs) yeah and i would say that somebody like less able-bodied than i uh, might need like some kind of auto fire option on the ride because you need to pull the cord to fire 
hundreds of times over the course of the ride. Um, and th that's tiring. Uh, so Absolutely. like we're, we're looking at what we already have in terms of interactivity and in rides. And we're saying to ourselves, this is kind of the upper bound of the kind of interactivity that we can have that remains as accessible as what we have to go any more interactive is to invite inaccessibility. Absolutely. Another type of limitation, and it's something that you can come up against when you're trying to design a ride designed around interactivity, is like the content of the of the story that you're trying to tell, or the like the limit around the story that you're trying to tell has to be actually fairly specific. Can you imagine a world where the Millennium Falcon Smug Smugglers run, like where you actually had free reign to fly the Falcon? <laughs> And, yes. <laughs> and I mean, that would be amazing. Um, but if, if like at the end, when you're flying through the asteroid field before docking back at Batu, what if, you know, the ride was so interactive and so big that you just took the Millennium Falcon on a joy ride and just like flew away into space? Nobody would get off the ride. <laughs> you would if be that were on possible, I would literally be living on a Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run pod right now. Like, right. You would, you never would get not off. be able to stop me. I would be like, let's check out Mustafar. Oops, you're I, on I Solo I don't care now. that it's terrible. <laughs> like, and, and so, like, as far as limitations go, you do have to have some pretty specific parameters as to, the, like, the story you're telling, how interactive it can be to get people on and off the ride. That's just logistics. And that's just, that's about, you know, being fair to everybody. Everybody gets to participate the same amount of time. You get to participate in the same like way. Um, and and so that's, I don't know, that's a, that's a limitation worth thinking about. You can't just give people free reign um, uh, or you end up with, actually, you know what I just thought of, or you end up with something like um, like interventions where you do have free reign of the inside of the <laughs> of the inside of the space and you just hang out playing arcade games all day <laughs> hang out playing arcade games all day like you could go in there could have it's obviously not there anymore but interventions at Disneyland just a great big building full of computer games and stuff to look at at one point they had segways in there do you remember that i remember the segways you couldn't ride them when we were teenagers and we were there alone because you needed to sign a release and we were not old enough to sign the release to ride the segways sure but um, there but were that was like segways a thing that you can do so like if you accidentally create a space that's too interactive you have like a either no one wants to go in there because like there's nothing to do because they go like i can play an arcade at home why am i at disneyland playing an arcade yeah. or or the opposite where suddenly you're in there and it's dark and all this time has passed and you don't realize how long you've been in there like a <laughs> casino in vegas yeah <laughs> and, and like that that can be a you know a problem if you don't have like a set path for people to follow your um you know the experience can become listless or you know undefined yeah i agree uh one more thing that i think uh a limitation that i would like to set for us in our imagining here um we've spoken about the lost state and we've spoken about the positive uh competition that some of these shooting gallery rides already have um but one thing that i think you can't really have is like a situation where skilled players can make unskilled players lose fast 
in a way that like hurts their experience. Right. So like if you're going to invent Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, but everybody's in an X-Wing and whoever like shoots down the most opponents just keeps riding. Um, that's a problem. And I am thinking about similar uh, competitive games uh, or competitive rides like bumper cars, for example, or the elusive bumper boats um, <laughs> and the ways that you are able to be skilled at driving those vehicles and to kind of ruin another person's day. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, like in a theme park ride where we're trying to be interactive and move a lot of people through, perhaps these are not our best options at all because like you know somebody's just gonna get good and take over you're absolutely right and that would be yeah you wouldn't want to ruin someone's day you wouldn't want to ruin someone's experience and you want to make it age appropriate and friendly for everyone right little little kids aren't going to have as much fun if they're being beaten by the big kids or grown-ups and i would go ahead and beat a kid at x-wing fighting if that was an option for me i would I would have no problem with that. <laughs> if, if I get to keep flying the X-Wing in the super cool space simulation and I get to be Luke Skywalker for as long as I can stay alive, I'm staying alive. I'm stepping on those kids on my way to the top and that's just <laughs> how it's going to be. <laughs> and that's probably why Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run is a co-op game instead of a competitive game. Uh, but, okay, so Alice, you and I are here to... Uh, kind of round out our talk about like how to move beyond the shooting gallery uh, by imagining a little bit uh, what we would like to see in the future of interactive rides. And something I'd like to kind of uh, circle back to because I've already mentioned uh, some attractions that you might see at places like this, but like where should we look for inspiration? If it's not escape rooms necessarily because while they're very cool and interactive and, you know, have their place in the future of theme parks, um, where should we be looking? And something that I came up with in preparation for this episode is the uh, often uh, maligned but always appreciated Family Fun Center. Yeah, like a Boomers or something, which I don't know if that's a local chain or if that's a national chain, but Boomers um, over here in California... Um, had a go-kart racing, it had arcade games, it had uh, some of the bigger ones I think had laser tag. Um, there was mini golf and there was uh, all sorts of fun things that you could do. Sometimes they even had little rides like a mini Ferris wheel or a you know a dragon boat of some kind um, where it's like an itty bitty little theme park, but the majority of the like experiences at a boomers were interactive. Oh, I went to one that had a batting cage once. That's interactive as heck. That's fun. You play a game. Like you're there to, you know, be physical, to be active and to like participate in something fun. Um, I am terrible at go-kart racing. Maybe I just don't like driving, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but we always would, you know, play and go go go-kart racing. It was fun. It was a race. It was, it was interactive and it was outdoors and it was like a a good, uh, you know, a family fun center, a good way to, to get kids out of the house. (laughs) 
Alice, the boomers closest to me growing up did have bumper boats. Um, it did have bumper boats. But those bumper boats were like, the reason I call them elusive is because they were never open. They're never uh, open and they're very weight restricted. Yeah, yeah, Those yeah. are for children only. <laughs> yeah, and that's a shame because a bumper boat is a lot of fun. Uh, and usually there was like a water gun like on the bumper boat so you could like spray each other while also bumping each other. Sounds yeah. amazing. Kind of problematic in a larger scale theme park, though. Um, I'm thinking about attractions at the Disneyland Resort that have been like a Family Fun Center's standard attractions. Uh, For example, uh, Luigi's Flying Tires, uh, formerly the Flying Saucers in Tomorrowland and no longer Luigi's Flying uh, Tires. Now the um, the the dancing cars i think is what they are like the luigi's dancing cars uh those were a lot like a bumper car or a bumper boat these little hovercraft uh vehicles that you could get into that you kind of get to drive around this uh air cushion environment really hard to explain the flying tires actually oh man when they when we were way younger when a bug's land was still a thing they were the roly-poly bumper cars yeah, the Remember roly-poly that? bumper cars at a Bugs Land flicks fun fair, as it was uh, uh. officially known. Um, those were interesting as well. And what I'm so interested in with those is those bumper cars, there were a lot more of them on the bumper car floor than you might see in a standard bumper car area. And there were instructions to drive a certain direction. Yes, they wanted you to go like counterclockwise. And um, and only counterclockwise. They didn't want you driving against the grain because they didn't encourage like active crashing. <laughs> that that's so odd because it, they were bumper cars. But if everybody's driving the same direction, bumping is nearly impossible. Yeah, they all go the same speed too. So it's not like you're going to catch up to the guy in front of you. The only person you're hitting is the person directly next to you, basically. <laughs> So those those actually maybe don't necessarily work on the larger theme park scale as much as we'd kind of like them to. Yeah. Because what I notice about those rides specifically is either they made operational changes that made them kind of not in the spirit of the original attraction um, and therefore less competitive, less fun, less of a story, or... They were like a weird enhanced version of what we might expect and therefore uh, technologically just just untenable because the flying tires, much like the flying saucers before them, just never worked. Um, and right. so there was that that desire to upgrade. But, you know, these were things that never really needed fixing. They just needed to be embraced. Um, but now that I think about it, like, Autopia is I basically go karts just going to say Autopia. <laughs> I was just going to say it. Because, like, I understand why you don't want to encourage active crashing in a bumper car zone in Disneyland. For the same reason you don't want to encourage active go-kart racing in Autopia. <laughs> Those things have, like, a max speed of, like, 10 miles per hour, and they're on a very strict track that you cannot deviate from. Right. And if you could... Imagine, if you will, a world where you could simply drive the Autopia car wherever you so choose. Suddenly I'm realizing why there are all these weird restrictions around the roly-poly bugs as bumper cars. (laughs) It's because, like, chaos at Disneyland 
doesn't fly. Can you imagine us, you and me, at 15 years old in full control of a go-kart at Disneyland? Absolutely not. I no, can't imagine it. We would probably not be alive today. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, would, we would have definitely been kicked out of Disneyland or would have crashed and it would have been absolutely brutal. <laughs> Because we would have kept crashing on purpose, on purpose. after crashing. It was. Um, it would have been. And it would have been outrageous. And <laughs> now, yes, now it's all making sense to me. As far as I understand, Autopia, when it first opened, was not on a track. It and wasn't. And probably people were maybe better behaved. Yeah. The um, reason the track exists, though, is because of the problems of not having a track. Things like people getting stuck. Uh, people deciding to turn around, things like that. It all made for an unfun, inefficient experience. Now, Autopia's not nearly as fun as a good go-kart race. No. You know, the roly-poly bumper cars are not nearly as fun as a proper bumper cars, like, course, right? Like, it's not the same. But they do serve after a fashion for what they're meant to be. And I think that there is value in the standard versions of these interactive attractions. The Family Fun Center has to operate on an economy of scale, much like any themed environment. And so they are able to seat and serve enough people in these kinds of attractions for them to turn a profit. So my question is, like, what can we take from these? Since we know these are also tried and true and the interactive profile here is like, drive the thing, bump the thing, you know, <laughs> which is a lot less complicated than like, flip these three switches and hit the button to keep the Falcon flying. You know what I mean? Right. The other example too, um, an, a thing of something that would probably not work in a place like Disneyland, um, that does work in a family fun center would be like a laser tag. Oh yeah. Like there's no... There's no world in which Disneyland is like, yep, get your get your little guns and shoot your friends. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> that's not a thing. They wouldn't no. do that. There's no laser tag. You have a Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters where you're laser tagging aliens and targets, but never your friends. Yeah, and I think that's very purposeful, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, Alice, as a brief aside, because you mentioned laser tag, and we're on our podcast and i can't not talk about this <laughs> it will forever haunt me that we invented as a species laser tag probably the coolest thing our species ever invented mm -hmm. like beams of light fired at each other competitively in like a dark foggy space with a lot of black light like that owns it definitely <laughs> it's, it's very definitely cool rules. And, and like the techno music is bumping and somebody like airbrushed a wizard onto one of these walls that's just cool <laughs> as hell right so like i love laser tag it will forever haunt me that we invented this it got as good as it is and then we just kind of stopped and we're like all right laser tag is good enough i know there's so much more we could be doing with laser tag. So much we could be doing with laser tag. I mean, like, we, yeah, we used to go to places growing up that had, like, two-story, like, like combat zones. And we went to that one place uh, in Huntington Beach that had weapon switching. Which was it did wild. have weapon switching. There was a rapid-fire weapon setting and a like kind a of scattershot shotgun. Shot shotgun. Yeah. yeah. Which is so cool. And it's like, okay, 
We know how shooting in competitive video games is like the best thing in video games that people around the world enjoy and that people will get so good at it, they'll play it professionally. Like audiences will tune in to watch people who are good at this play these games. And it's clear to me that laser tag can just be that but real. And we're just all sitting around and it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) <laughs> We're all sitting around not playing laser tag all the time. I went and the laser tag we have, ago. the laser tag we have has not improved in the last decades, like not since the aughts. And so, like, what will it take, America, Planet Earth, bring like, laser tag back and bring it back well? Bring laser tag back and make it amazing. Embrace the lasers. This yeah. is the future. Like we, we can do lasers. it. Let's go farther, America. I'm talking weapon switching, laser sniping, laser grenades. I'm talking about laser tag health bars and pickups for laser laser tags. I'm talking about laser tag bosses that are like robots that awaken in the center of the arena that you and all your friends have to defeat together. <laughs> I'm talking about laser it's, tag. I mean, that sounds really great. That sounds wonderful. Right? right? I mean, of course I'm in. Because I was thinking about the last time I went laser tag, I do want to suggest maybe one thing that maybe could work in a theme park environment or Mm. something similar. Go ahead. Um, Bowling. Oh. I think bowling could work. I think you can get bowling going in a theme park environment or something similar. Some kind of like like bowling or like a lawn game of of some kind. Lawn bowling. (laughs) Um, Uh, Even even mini golf, I feel like there's mini golf could probably be done too. Yeah. Something something like that. I mean, projectiles are a little tricky when you have kids, you know, like a bowling ball or a um, or a golf ball or something with kids around, you know, that, that that becomes a little bit of a liability problem. But here's where I'm going to start going into listener thoughts, because I had a lovely conversation with the listener who wanted to suggest something um, for something interactive some kind of interactive ride and experience for a theme park. And it is related to bowling. That's why I brought it up. Um, My very good friend, Ben suggested to us at those happy places. He said, Hey, those happy places. Um, What about something like the um, Xbox connect, but in a, but in a theme park ride experience, what about some kind of additional motion sensor, um, ride kind of like web slingers, uh, but not necessarily just for target shooting, but for doing anything. And that got me thinking about like Wii Sports and Wii Bowling and bowling alleys and stuff like that. And I was like, there could be a way for a theme park ride experience to do entirely like virtual reality, like gaming, like games, and not just like a virtual reality, like, oh, I'm going to sit with this visor over my face and pretend like I'm riding a roller coaster. But like a virtual world where you are playing games with your friends. Maybe that's it's, an interesting concept. Maybe it's a driving range. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's Wii bowling. Maybe it's, um, you know, you've got to stand with your friends. Maybe the game you choose to play is one where you're standing next to your friends and you have to like hop over uh, a series of obstacles. And then uh, and then, you know, however far you get is your score. It, not necessarily win lose, but. You're trying to see how many, you know, you can jump over. That's a connect game, I think. Um, and or one where you have to stand next to your friend and lean in one direction or another to steer, a, you know, a car or a bobsled or something. 
like a virtual reality theme park with that kind of technology is not that crazy of an idea. It's not even close to out of this like realm of possibility. I mean, motion tracking becoming more commonplace and making its way into attractions like Web Slingers seems to indicate that this is actually probably how shooting galleries of the future will operate. Uh, It's one less thing that people interact with that can break. Uh, It's just something that runs on software on a device that people never touch or even look at. um, And that allows you different modes of interactivity with the environment. Uh, I would like to see an expansion into things like, you know, maybe in your seat, like doing little dodges um, around obstacles and things like that. I don't know about jumping and ducking. I know, uh, that is a limitation that we just talked about. <laughs> right. But I, I would like to see like a little bit of like guest movement being part of the equation beyond just like, does the system detect an arm? Okay, fire a web, right? Right. Uh, there is, there's got to be a way to kind of bridge that gap just a little bit to give us more variation in how we act. And when you're, when you're talking about things like Wii Sports and, and Wii Bowling especially, I know how much people love Wii Sports Bowling specifically. <laughs> and I think that's interesting because it's like such a simple thing. It's like such a simple movement with such simple parameters around success or failure. And I think that's actually kind of the appeal. It's like it's not a super complicated thing. Everybody knows how to bowl. Bowling has a really clear goal. It's basically a shooting gallery, but with a ball on the ground instead of, like, lasers in the air, right? Uh, and so why not, like, score attack bowling games? Um, that sounds interesting. So in that way, it's kind of more of a Midway Mania question. It's like, what kind of other games can we have people interact with quickly to kind of, you know, keep us moving, but also give new ways of having audiences move to create? Uh, that action and so that's a that's a good point thank you ben yes thank you ben that was a fun conversation we had the other night he's a good he's a good guy and a and a, and a loyal listener um alice i'd like to introduce uh the words of another contributor and listener i hope uh this comes to us from 8-bit theme park uh who creates theme park stuff in eight bits it's actually pretty cool that's awesome uh they are at 8-Bit Theme Park on Twitter, and their pitch was cartoon spin, but you're actually steering between routes. So imagine, if you will, a dark ride where you have a wheel, and you are able to use your wheel instead of to spin or not to spin, but to actually steer between several predetermined routes through the dark ride. Hmm. Um... That seems not only doable, but also like the coolest. That sounds so fun. That kind of thing seems more and more possible. Not easy, but possible with the improvements of technology on like a trackless ride like Rise of the Resistance, which has like preset directions that the cars can go and and will go. Um, You're not just truly trackless, just driving around willy nilly. But you... You know, if if it was a ride that was designed where you get to pick your route, you know, as you go, oh, no, we're hitting a crossroads. Which way do you want to go, left or right? And then you got to choose that. 
and then your ride would be different every time if you if you wanted it to be that could be really interesting yeah i mean it really depends on how in-depth ride designers are able to get or want to get for operational reasons um like maybe you know a route that is for you more narratively satisfying because you've ridden them all um, or maybe you never know what route you're about to end up on because there are so many. What if you go right four times and end up on this far off branch uh, that you've never been on before instead of going like right, left, right and kind of staying towards the middle? Um, I'm imagining kind of like a like a branching tree path, like everybody starts on the first uh, route and then you, you kind of go left or right multiple times until you reach various endings. That sounds really, really cool. It also sounds like nobody's ever going to want to build a ride like this because <laughs> nobody wants to build a ride where like a quarter of the choices are almost never seen, right? Right. I was also thinking like the space involved in that. If you were making it practical instead of like screens, the space involved would be outrageous. You'd <laughs> need so much room. Um, and, and we just, I don't know, at least Disneyland Anaheim does not have room for that kind of thing. <laughs> we're, <laughs> Nowhere fresh in out of, we're fresh out of space, actually. California is out of land. <laughs> so I, I do like that idea from 8-Bit Theme Park. And actually, two more of our listeners and frequent contributors, uh, Aslam and Cassidy. Uh, Cassidy is of the MacGuffin podcast, by the way. An episode of which we guested on uh, a long time ago now uh, about the Jungle Cruise. Yeah, uh, the, the film the because film. the MacGuffin podcast is a, it's a film podcast anyways both Aslam and Cassidy said we need choose your own adventure the ride and oh, I yeah. feel like that's a lot like what 8-bit theme park said it's interesting that so many people gravitated towards this idea of choosing your own adventure um, when current rides seem like they're gravitating towards either the adventure can be different like in the case of Star Tours the adventure continues or you're on an adventure and you can affect that adventure by shooting a gun, usually, uh, in the case of the shooting gallery rides. Um, but rides giving riders a choice in how the ride goes seems to be, like, a real desire among fans of theme parks. Like, we want to choose how it goes. Absolutely. People love to have control over their environment. And that's... Um, Part of the, we've talked about this before, part of the like appeal of a roller coaster or some kind of um, other theme park ride is like the loss of control. Like show, show me, you know, something, so show me something new, take me out of my, you know, my real life experience and, you know, take the control away um, is like a huge appeal. But I totally understand why there are people that, you know, multiple people, including multiple of our darling listeners are so eager for a choose your own adventure style. Take a little bit of control back, but it's for the fun of influencing your environment. Yeah. And I mean, like the desire to have an adventure that you're in control of that is also experiential to all of your senses in a way that a video game perhaps is not, right, is like 
a very understandable one. Like, I've always wanted to be like, no, I wouldn't steer that way, actually, Pinocchio. I wouldn't get into the cage (laughs) because I I know that's not right. You're not supposed to get into a cage. Um, Like, I've always wanted to be able to make choices on rides. I've always wanted to steer uh, away from the idol on the Indiana Jones adventure or to land on Endor at the end of Star Tours. Like... that lack of choice leaves us feeling like oh what if we had gone on the other adventure what if we had done things right what if we had made correct choices and i think like the thing about choose your own adventure is what makes those books fun and it's funny that like the phrase got used over and over choose your own adventure but now i'm thinking specifically about choose your own adventure like books right right what makes those books fun is it's like wealth of lost states like, <laughs> That's right. choose, your own, choose your own adventure will advertise that it ends 80 different ways but like most of those endings are you drink the poison and die <laughs> like you fell into the hole and died uh it's never like here's you know an ending that is slightly less good make sure you make slightly more good choices next time it's, it's never like that you either get like the one that lasts most of the book or you get stabbed in the duel and die, right? Like, there's only so many successful paths. And I wonder if we want a theme park ride where there are wrong choices and we can lose. And so if we're giving riders branching paths, if eventually the car can just be like, no, you, you've messed up too many times, uh, we're taking you to the loading area. Um, and I wonder what that's like, honestly. I, I think that's, that is something that could be done correctly and not leave people feeling like they got cheated out of a good ride. And that brings me to what I want to talk about for the future of <laughs> the future of interactive rides. This is exactly what I wanted to talk about is the lost state in um, in a like a choose your own experience kind of ride. I've and been I- waiting for you to say that you've got this dream and I'm, I'm ready to hear it. All right. Here's my dream. Um, my dream is redoing the ride test track at Epcot. Um, okay. My dream is a new version of test track where, so if, if, if you, those of you who may not know test track and, and those of us who are strictly California based probably don't know just test track. Um, test track is a ride where you start off when you're in the line during the like pre-show experience before you get on the ride you get to design a car um, and you get to decide what tires go on the car. You get to pick the color of the car. Um, What, um, what kind of brakes did you choose for the car? What kind of, you know, what, what shape does your car take? Is it aerodynamic? Is it not? Did the tires you chose, are they good for speed or are they good for traction? You get to make like a series of choices about the design of your car before you get on the ride. And then you've got your little magic band and that, I really want magic bands to be more prevalent throughout Disney property. <laughs> um, you get your little, little magic band and you and you beep it to the screen and your car is stored on your magic band. And then when you get on the ride, your ma- you beep the magic band again when you get on. And, and the way that you designed your car, and there's six people on the ride vehicle at a time, and all six people's ride vehicles show up on like a little screen 
as you're driving through um, through the test track. And so what it is, is the, the ride is like, hey, you designed a car. You all designed a car. Let's check your car's performance in a series of um, experiments. We're going to drive on like a slick, rainy road. We're going to accelerate while going up a hill. We're going to uh, go into a hot room, a cold room, and like a corrosive room, and see if you pick the, <laughs> pick, pick the right like um, you know environmental factors of your car. And so you you go through a series of tests, and then it will tell you how well your car did. It will actually actively rank the six cars that are participating and say which one did the best did this one handle the best did this one uh break the fastest does this one is this one the most aerodynamic is this one the fastest is this and and like the the last thing that you get to do is it brings you out onto like a racetrack and and you go like 65 miles per hour around this um part of the test track which is um about testing the speed of your car and then it will tell you at the end of that which car drove the fastest, which one had the best acceleration. You can technically lose that ride in that like your car could be the worst performing car. <laughs> you could have chosen the worst choice, but but not really because if you chose the best tires for speed, but they're the worst tires for handling on slippery roads, you'll get sixth place on the slippery road channel uh, challenge, but you'll get first place on the speed challenge. So it's right. kind of like everybody has a chance to have had the best car, but you can also just like make a bad car. <laughs> it, like you, like it is possible for you to do that on that ride um, and to just have the worst performing car of the day um, or of the six, you know, people. Um, some of whom are your friends and some of whom are strangers. And I did single rider on that one. Oh. So I actually didn't get a chance to sit there with the kiosk and like really design my car. Right. And it just very quickly made a couple of choices. Not know, and, on, and I don't know anything about the ride. It's my first time on it. Uh, first and only time on it. Um, so I made a couple of quick choices and I, I think I did pretty good on, on, on handling, uh, but not on speed at all. Huh. Um, I'm pretty sure I had like the fifth, most you know like like second from the bottom of her car car performance like oh my i did not a didn't do a good job but the ride is still really fun because there's six of you and you're all like sitting in the same car together and the car will accelerate and decelerate and go really really fast you're still having fun and then at the right. end it's like good job with your cars you did it and then you leave and that and that's it there is so much potential to this ride i thought it was so fun I thought it was so fun, so immersive, and so interactive, and I but I couldn't help but think how much better the ride could be if they changed a couple of things. And my first idea is to make the cars smaller, fewer people in the car, two people maybe, like a little Autopia vehicle. And my second idea is for the choices that you make on your car to actually affect the experience of the ride. So if you chose the the tires that are really good for speed, but really bad on the slippery road, that car could spin out. And that might be more fun if your car did spin out, right? Because then maybe it's a, like it's a trackless ride and you you programmed your choice, your kind of car into, into the software. And then when it hit, it's on the part of the ride that's the slippery road, it does like a 360 spin or something. 
and and shows you that you did a bad job choosing <laughs> the tire the tires. You did a bad job. Wow, that wasn't very good. It would say, "Wow, those <laughs> tires don't seem to be made for driving on rainy roads." Let's try the next test, you know. And and it wouldn't be negative. It doesn't need to be like you lose. You're bad at car designing. <laughs> but it could be like maybe if you had chosen this kind of you know of tire, you would have done better in this challenge. Um, but then when you did the speed one, it would be like, wow, that was a really good choice of tire. Good job, you know, like like that. But it could change. And and I think that the end part with the speech, you still should. Everybody gets to go fast at the end because that's like the, the fun part. Like if you didn't make a fast car, you still get to like have the experience of going fast because it's still a ride, you know. Um, but maybe you know, maybe it, it doesn't go as fast. Maybe it goes just a little sore. The acceleration takes a little longer or something. The ride, it could be completely customizable with just like a couple of choices made by the rider. And I'm imagining like trackless, dark ride, kind of Rise of the Resistance looking kind of cars, except maybe even a little smaller, like you said that uh, go through each of these as sort of a race between all of them. Um, and so they kind of line up at a starting line for each of the challenges and then can race each other and actually, like, race each other. Yeah. I think that would be so cool. It would be really cool. There's a lot of potential for customization of this of this kind of ride. Um, and also, I think that you should be able to then get a 3D print of your car. At the you end should absolutely you be able to you 3D should, print your car. You should car. be able to buy a, a copy of your car. If you made a really good car and you're really proud of it, you should be able to watch it be 3D printed in front of you. And I think that would be really special. Not only is that futuristic as heck, that is a lot of fun and just makes sense for like a cool piece of merch. The thing is, 3D printing is, is pretty slow. So yeah. you might have to put in an order and come back later and you might not be able to watch it. Um, yeah. But but if you could put in an order near the beginning of the day and pick it up near the end of the day, like, how cool is that? Like, remember when this car won the race? We did that. We <laughs> remember, made that. Remember when this car did a really bad job, and but we fell in <laughs> love with it anyways and got a, got a copy? Like, I don't know. It could be like a little Hot Wheels-sized little car. I think yeah. that would be really fun. And and part of the like interactive experience with the with the ride. There's so much potential there, like especially with cars. And there's no shooting involved. There's no targets involved. There's no guns involved in this. This is just fun car stuff. Yeah. And and Alice, if if you'll indulge me, because I think your your idea is awesome and I wanna like build on it and and uh, cherish it. Um, if you'll allow me, I'd like to share uh, my dream for the future of interactivity and rides. Please and it's do. one of the things you just said. I, I don't want any more shooting. Uh, I yeah. am so tired of shooting and violence, even like nonviolent violence, but like flinging things at things for me is like kind of a violent act, right? Like, I'm so tired of that being our method of interaction in any kind of interactive space. And one of our one of our listeners and contributors uh, who is at Periwinkle Pretz on Twitter sent in a couple of really great examples of rides that they've been working on that 
would be about these nonviolent ways of interacting, like being sent on a research mission and using like a robotic arm to grab research samples or, uh, you know, being walked into a chamber and having to avoid a, uh, a large monster of some kind. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, and we've been paraphrasing all of these contributions uh, because I think there are very cool specifics that you could maybe go and read on Twitter. I'm at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And you can find the thread where folks were contributing their ideas. Um, but, like, I was really kind of inspired by some of those con- contributions because, like, non-violent interaction, non-destructive I'm not throwing anything at anything. I'm not breaking anything. I'm not firing anything. Like, it's just like I, I am interacting with the space in a way that is uh, measured and calm and not hurting anything. And I, I just really like that. So nonviolent options for interactivity, ways to engage with a space that do not require any kind of firing of any sort of weapon or non-weapon. I don't want to launch anything anymore. I'm so tired of that. Um, and my, my other big ask for the future of interactivity in rides is slower paces. Uh, it can be a a car or an Omnimover or whatever, but slower paces, the ability to move through larger, more open spaces very slowly, uh, and ways to unlock events that don't happen every time. So... If you'll, if you'll allow me, my big, like, blue sky dream of a ride is Pokemon Snap the Ride. Pokemon Snap the Ride? Pokemon Snap the Ride. That sounds so fun. I know. And what I love about Pokemon Snap the Ride is that it is exactly Pokemon Snap the game. Tell our listeners who may not know about Pokemon Snap the game, what okay. is Pokemon Snap? <laughs> Pokemon Snap is a series of video games in the Pokemon franchise. Uh, In the Pokemon franchise mainline games, you capture and battle these monsters against each other. These pocket monsters, if you will. Uh, In Pokemon Snap, there is no capturing and there is no battling because you are a research assistant with a camera. And that's it. Uh, You do have some other tools with which you can interact with the space. I'll get into that in a second because I kind of want to share how I want them to be integrated into the ride. Um, But you've got a camera and you're on a car in the game that moves on a predetermined track that has some built-in variations along it. So you can, at certain points, affect your environment so that parts of the track become blocked or unblocked and your route through the level will change uh and that's very exciting to me as a theme park person and as a player of video games um that there's these variations by which you can move through familiar spaces uh and your goal as you move along these predetermined tracks uh is to take good pictures of pokemon and that's it like, you're not trying to hurt anything, you're not trying to capture anything, you are just here to observe and to take cool pictures. Uh, and I think that that makes a good concept for a theme park attraction. 
you put riders in groups of two to four, I think is ideal for Pokemon Snap the Ride. You give each rider a camera, uh, and that camera is attached to the ride vehicle. And the ride vehicle uh, allows you, you know, maybe full 360 degree movement, like on a, a joystick, like on Buzz Lightyear Astro Blasters. But other than that, you're not in control of the pace at all. Uh, and what would be so cool, because this is my dream attraction, my blue sky for the interactivity, um, would be if instead of screens uh, or 3D elements, anything behind a, a pair of 3D glasses, all of the Pokemon in the ride could be audio animatronics. Uh, oh, wow. And they could exist at scale, at the full scale that you expect them to, some of them could come out of water, some of them could emerge from foliage, uh, some of them could fly, and, you know, flying animatronics is kind of a big, uh, you know, physical limitation, so maybe they're on wires or whatever, but, you know, they could they could fly around or land on a branch or something and have a very limited range of movement. And you would simply take pictures, and those pictures would maybe be attached to an app or, say, a magic band or uh, equivalent uh, that you could, like, boop-boop at the end of the ride and then boop-boop it onto a kiosk. And you could print your <gasps> photographs print your photos. of the Pokemon just like in the days of the Nintendo 64 when you would take your Pokemon save to a blockbuster kiosk and print your photos. I remember that. That was you would, so fun. You'd be able to capture that same magic right there at the theme park. And I imagine riders would get like one free print each with the option to like buy a bunch more. Or like maybe you can buy like one sticker of just this one shot yeah. that you got that you but really your, liked. Your digital versions are free, but if you want a print version, maybe they're, yes. you know, a little bit. Yeah, that, that for me would be the coolest. And the other thing that I think is, like, crucial to a Pokemon Snap the Ride working is the concept of the flute, the pester ball, and the bait. That uh, sounds like a lot. <laughs> I know. Um, but what I think is very cool is that with multiple riders, you could have multiple roles that could help each other out with this. So... For example, perhaps one rider has the joystick. Perhaps the next rider has the flute or the music maker or the scan capability. They, they were kind of uh, changed between each other um, between the games. And one rider could have the pester ball and one rider could have the bait. And those could be on uh, maybe motion control. You could like make a gesture to throw them. Uh, or they could be on uh, on a little cannon or something that the, the vehicle is able to fire one. And what they would do is, if you activated them at the right moment, uh, while you're kind of moving around these Pokemon animatronics, the Pokemon animatronics could react accordingly, and you could get new poses, new interactions, uh, out of these hopefully very cool audio animatronics. And what would be even cooler, Alice, is if you could, by using these tools effectively as a team, cause certain Pokemon to appear. I'm thinking of an uh, interaction in the first game where you could cause a Pokemon to knock 
an egg into a volcano. And if you got that interaction timed right, a legendary bird, Moltres, would actually emerge from the volcano, having hatched from its egg when it got knocked in. Yeah. And you would get the chance to take a photo. How cool would it be if, like, you threw something at a certain Pokemon and a legendary Pokemon appeared and you were able to get that picture? I'm picturing, I just had, like, a vision of, like, a waterfall and then you drive past the waterfall and maybe there's a fish or, you know, like a Magikarp or something, like, in the in the pool of water at the base. But if you throw the Pester Ball through the waterfall, then a Gyarados head pops out at you. Yes, And the Gyarados exactly. head pops out at you like the like the T-Rex at the end of the Jurassic Park ride. Oh, my God. It, like, splits the waterfall stream and it roars. And you right? get a great picture. Right? And then you get to remember that. Remember and, when and we like, made Gyarados appear. Yeah. And so... Okay, I'm I'm asking a lot of the universe by imagining this at all because this is so much easier to do with screens and with maybe projections on glasses or something. But please universe, animatronic pokemon that you can take cool pictures of on the ride. And just like imagine how cool that is. And imagine the different routes you could take. And most importantly, and this is this is what I think would be so cool, Pokemon Pokemon Snap the Ride is four rides. It's a grassland and a water and a volcano and an iceberg or something, or like an island or a beach. Uh, and you could get in line for any of the environments at the opening to the queue. So you can ride it over and over and over again and check out all the cool Pokemon on all the different environments. And, you know, you could even, like, stack them if you wanted to save space, you know? Your car rides a little elevator up to the volcano when you get on that one. uh, And go vertical with it. I just think this is the interactive ride. And... I'm aware that Pokemon and Universal have a partnership going. If this is what they announce, first of all, you heard it here first and they owe me money. TM, 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 (laughs) CR. Um, But also, this is, for me, this is how you make a Pokemon theme park attraction. You can't do Pokemon battles on a theme park attraction. It's too competitive, too many losers, not fun. You can't catch Pokemon on a theme park attraction. You can maybe do it digitally with screens. That sounds pretty boring to me, actually. I mean, we already have Pokemon Go, the game. Right. And so it's looking like it's got to be Pokemon Snap. And that means that it should be done with interactivity first, with cooperation, but also your own personal story to tell at the end. Here's my picture of Gyarados. Aren't I the best Pokemon photographer? (laughs) And honestly, yeah, you would feel like you're the best because you made Gyarados pop out. And how cool are you, right? And so that's my dream. This big open space with a lot of interactables, a lot of different ways of interacting, and a lot of ways to just capture those moments uh, and to make them your own. And... If I could have any interactive theme park ride, that would be the one that I would ask the universe for. That sounds amazing. Right? Let's, let's do it. Let's build it. 
Uh, ring, ring. Hello. It's Universal. What's that? You'd like to invest? Well, Alice, it sounds like our conversation about theme parks, interactivity, and the future thereof, and going beyond the shooting gallery, has come to an end because we got to take this call from Universal. <laughs> yes, it has come to an end for now. Uh, just hold on one second, Universal. We'll be right back. We'll be right there. Um, we need to close this podcast episode. Yes, no, no. Of You'll have to hold. Yes, please okay, hold they Universal. Said they'll hold. All right. <laughs> but if you want to talk to us more about interactivity, you want to talk to us about theme parks, you want to talk to, to us about anything, you can always continue this conversation with us on the internet. On the internet. Yes, I'm always on the internet. As I already said, my Twitter handle is at buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Alice White THP for those happy places. And if you like what we do and you want to support us monetarily, we are on Patreon. Yes, patreon.com slash those happy places is the place to be. There are bonus episodes and blog posts and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, recently re- refurbished. Um, there's only two tiers now to choose from. Very simple. Um, all ways to support the show. Um, we appreciate any anything anything you got <laughs> we we appreciate it um once again that website is patreon.com slash those happy places and if you are not in a place right now where you feel you can monetarily support the show of course there are other ways to support us liking retweeting posts on our social media always helps uh and telling people about the show if you enjoy listening to it and saying like hey do you want to think about theme parks at a uh, level that treats them like literature? Do I have the podcast for you? It's called <laughs> Those Happy Places, hosted by Buddy Duquesne and Alice White, and it's the best. Yeah. Uh, you know, word of mouth is how we have found a lot of listeners, and since we have been back in your feeds uh, for this mini-season, as we're calling it, uh, we've experienced a certain amount of growth that is really, really positive. It's good to see... And I hope to see more of it in the future. And that can happen with your help. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for the, uh, participating and interacting and tweeting at us as much as you already do. It means the world to us. Um, and just uh, keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> now, Alice, I think I am going to add some music to this episode. And what kind of music are you going to add to this episode? All of the music added to this episode comes to us from Kevin McLeod. The website is incompetech.com. He licenses all of the music that he makes under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license, which simply requires that we say thank you to Kevin and provide proper attribution in the show notes. So thank you, Kevin. And the proper attribution is in the show notes. Thank you, Kevin. Um, but speaking of music... There's another tune that I can just hear. It plays in my head all the time, no right. matter what. But right now, I actually hear it ramping up in the background. That sounds like the song that also is playing in my head all of the time, which I believe is Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers featuring Phil Alvin. Absolutely. Wonderful song, wonderful band. If you're interested in learning more about them, you can find them on their website, CaliforniaFeetWarmers.com. Alice, thank you for doing this episode with me. Buddy, thank you for doing this episode with me. This was really, really, really fun. It's a longer episode. Um, and I had just the best time recording with you. You know, uh, when you 
put an episode topic like this into the universe and then you spend weeks on end waiting for this episode topic to come up uh, between recording and editing everything else. Uh, and then you finally get the chance to talk about it. It turns out, Alice, that uh, the two of us will have a lot to say about the topic. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but it, it has been a blast, and you are my best friend and favorite co-host, and I am so glad to have this episode. Uh, and I am so glad to be closing it out with you. So uh, here's to this episode and to many more. Yes, thank you, buddy. You're my best friend and favorite co-host, too. <laughs> and to everyone out there, thank you for listening, and we hope you return to those happy places. 